Henry Hsu made his name as a philosopher, asking which human rights ought to be first honoured and last sacrificed. He then turned to the moral responsibility that our generation has in slowing and reversing climate change. He argues that we are the pivotal generation. Previous generations didn't have the knowledge or means, and it will be too late for future ones. The time is now. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, John? I'm feeling very reflective. Um, I read our guest's book um, last weekend, the weekend before, and you can't help but make you take a massive step back and think about uh, our planet um, and my life. And so I am very grateful that we've got this time together. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling like you're feeling, and I'm also feeling quite content this week from uh, what I feel was a really challenging but very satisfying week of work. Um, eager to jump into this conversation, also a bit anxious about it. It's a it's a topic that's uh, easy, more easily avoided uh, to try to keep ourselves from uh, from facing reality sometimes but it's a reality we all need to face and so I'm 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 really grateful for our guest and our guest today is uh, political philosopher Henry Shu. Henry is a senior research fellow at the Center for International Studies at the University of Oxford. In 1976, he founded the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He was a supporter of the successful campaign to stop the Atlantic Coastline Pipeline. His books include Basic Rights, where he considered which human rights ought to be first honored and last sacrificed as it relates to U.S. foreign policy. He then turned his attention to the morality of strategies for nuclear weapons and then to the morals of climate change. He wrote Climate Justice, and his most recent book is The Pivotal Generation, Why We Have a Moral Responsibility to Slow Climate Change Right Now. Professor Shu, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Delighted to be here. Looking forward to seeing what's on your mind. Henry, welcome. Um, how are you feeling? Good, good. Privileged uh, because uh, I welcome opportunities to talk about this. Excellent. Well, can you take us on a quick tour of your life's work and ideas before we, we dive into the pivotal generation so our listeners can get a sense of who you are? Well, actually, Scott did a very nice uh brief job. I uh, started out teaching philosophy, um, and one of the courses I taught was one about uh, moral issues and uh, concerning world hunger. And after teaching that for a few years, I uh, started feeling that rather than just talking about it, I'd like to do something. So I left uh, teaching and went to Washington uh, the basic plan was to become president of the United States, <laughs> or uh, short of that, uh, maybe a legislative assistant to a, a senator or something. But uh, what I actually ended up doing was uh, joining another philosopher to, to create this place that, that Scott mentioned, the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy. And we tried to get philosophers to focus um, on specific questions of public policy. This was the time that Jimmy Carter was president, so there was lots of talk about human rights. And so that was when I wrote uh, Basic Rights, because I thought um, 
to some extent, uh, American politicians were using human rights as a way to beat up the Soviet Union, uh, but uh, ignoring a lot of uh, rights that we could be doing something about, like economic development and, uh, and social rights. So uh, I don't want to take the whole program on, on myself. So gradually, um, sort of decade by decade, I, I worked on different problems. Um, in the 80s, when President Reagan came in, I did a, quite a bit of work on um, nuclear deterrence because the uh, Reagan's Star Wars project sort of uh, scared my pants off, basically. I, I thought it was very dangerous, and uh, so I spent that period working on that. But in the 1990s, um, finally, I noticed climate change. I mean, I, I really knew nothing about it until right about 1990. But it then became clear there were some quite serious moral issues uh, involving climate change. And I've been working on it really for the last 30 years, although I've continued to do some work about war. So since the 90s, since you've, you've, you've dived into that, um, what has been some of the most compelling thought leaders and ideas uh, and evidence that has been informing your thinking can you, can you pull that out a little bit, the kind of the work you've been doing, what's influenced it, and what you're thinking about now? Actually, the single greatest influence on my uh, thinking about climate change was an Indian um, activist named uh, Anil Agarwal, um, who's no longer um, living, but... Um, around 1990, well, you know, the, the, the big climate change conference that established the framework convention on climate change was in 1992 in Rio. But in the couple of years before that, uh, the treaty had to be drafted, the treaty that was actually uh, adopted in 1992. And um, Agarwal was one of the people uh, who started pointing out that uh, the wealthy countries like the U.S. and the U.K., kept saying, well, we have this problem, which is everybody, everybody's problem. And um, Agarwal said, well, yes and no, uh, you guys caused the problem. I mean, the, the problem is the result of uh, the carbon emissions that have come primarily from the Industrial Revolution, and uh, you guys... Uh, had the Industrial Revolution, which we are just beginning to try to have here. So um, it's everybody's problem in the sense that we're all going to suffer from it, but it's not everybody's problem in the sense that we all produced it. And so you need to take that into account. So he really launched these discussions about how important is it who caused the problem, how important is it who's going to suffer from the problem, what about the fact that uh, the people who did the most to cause the problem are not the people who are going to suffer the most, and so on and so And these, from a philosopher's point of view, these are questions about justice, fairness. And um, I've worked on a lot of issues. Uh, nuclear deterrence was, was one of them, actually, where there are moral problems, but when you talk to the policymakers, 
their sort of basic tendency is to say, well, don't bother us with the moral problems. We got a real problem here. You know, this is national security and these people are trying to kill us. So, uh, you know, it would be interesting to think about the morality, but we can't really afford that. In the case of climate change, the moral issues have really been at the heart of the political debates from the very beginning because of the the reason it's taken so long to get effective climate change treaties is that uh, the wealthier countries uh, who created most of the emissions have kept saying everybody has to pitch in, everybody has to work on this, and the poorer countries have said mm-hmm. We didn't cause the problem. Why do we have to work on this? Why do we have to help with this? In 1997, for example, there was something called the Kyoto Protocol, and it it required action by wealthy countries to deal with climate change, but it didn't require action by countries like China and India. And the general idea was that at that point, they hadn't really contributed much to the problem. China's, of course, contributed a lot now. But the reaction, especially from uh, American politicians, was, well, if the Chinese and the Indians are not going to do anything, why should we do anything? And so the U.S. Senate rejected the Kyoto Protocol, and it basically uh, didn't get anywhere. And that's why uh, it wasn't until uh, 2015 in Paris that we finally got the Paris Agreement, which requires some action by everybody, although, uh, as probably most of your listeners know, it's got this very odd structure that each country gets to say for itself what it thinks it's obligated to do. So you only have to do what you yourself say you have to do. And the good result of this is everybody's signed on, but the bad result is no one's doing enough, and uh, there's no uh, mechanism to really make anybody do any more than they're doing. So why are we the pivotal generation? Basically, because we have this spectacular opportunity of uh, bringing about a crucial revolution while there's still time, and there isn't much time left. I mean, one can look at at the the history of human civilization and say so far there have been two really big revolutions. There was the agricultural revolution in which we stopped being hunter-gatherers and did agriculture as we now know it, which enabled us to have cities and so became an urban civilization with uh, fixed agriculture. And then we had the industrial revolution which harnessed all this energy and gave us the wealth that we have now, but it also gave us climate change. So we need one more really major revolution, which is an energy revolution. We've got to get rid of the energy regime that gave us, that enabled us to have the industrial revolution and replace it with an energy regime that's not based on uh, burning carbon fuels. And we need to do it before we wreck the place. And our generation is effectively 
the last one uh, that can do this before the, the this being sharply reduce emissions. We're the last generation that can sharply reduce human greenhouse gas emissions before the uh, cumulative amount of them drives the climate into uh, a state that's going to be very tough for us. So we have a wonderful opportunity, but only for a very few years. And scientists argue about how many. But I mean, it's quite clear that in the next 10 years, we have to reverse course, as I think most people understand. To this day, we're emitting more greenhouse gases every year than we did the year before, with the exception of 2020, when we had COVID. And so greenhouse gas emissions continue to go upward in spite of all the talk and all the treaties and so on. So we have to reverse that and start bringing them down right away. Uh, and certainly in the next 10 years, a lot of the scientists say we, we really need to be firmly on a downward path by 2030. It's not that we have to do everything by 2030. People sometimes say, you know, <laughs> the world is going to end unless we're uh, dealt with the climate by 2030. That, that's not true. But what is true is that we need to change our trajectory uh, sharply from emissions going up to emissions going down. And talk about leadership. <laughs> we really need leadership. Um, to do this because we need new thinking, new initiatives, and uh, radically different action from uh, what's been business as usual. So let's talk about facing up to the reality that the uh, interest groups facing something of an existential threat from climate policy, you know, fossil fuel companies and traditional utilities that won't go quietly into the night. Um, you talk about, you know, we need to undermine their political power. How do we ensure we don't underestimate the sort of intelligence, the foresight, the determination of the of the powerful and the um, the rich on the side of, you know, preventing some of these policy changes that we mm. need so desperately? I think we have a real battle on our hands. I mean, m many scholars talk about climate change as if everybody understands and everybody's full of goodwill and we just have to figure out what to do. But that's really not the political situation. There, there are people uh, who, as you said, face an existential threat to their wealth because their wealth um, consists of proven reserves of coal, oil, and gas. And uh, these reserves are valuable only as long as, as this stuff can be uh, sold to be burned. But to deal with climate change, we've got to stop burning it, which means stop selling it. And uh, one might have hoped that uh, leaders of major fossil fuel firms would have seen that this is true and, and joined the fight. Uh, but I think they haven't. I mean, there was uh, 
Yesterday in the Guardian, uh, Guardian newspaper uh, published here in, in the UK, there's a very good article about what's called carbon bombs. And the carbon bombs are all the new projects to find more oil and more gas over the next uh, mm. 20 or 30 years. And this is insane because uh, it's quite clear that of the gas and the oil that we've already identified, at most, we can burn about 60% of it, and the rest of it's got to stay in the ground. So it's really uh, mad to go looking for more, but that's what uh, major fossil fuel companies are doing. So I, I think their own behavior, and in particular where they're putting their money, which is into finding more of these fuels shows that they're not, they're really not with the, uh, the climate change movement. And so they are our adversaries, basically, politically. Um, you said, uh, how do we not underestimate them? It's, uh, I think you, you can't overestimate their power. I, I, th I think the, the whole complex of uh, fossil fuel companies and the tankers and the refiners and the uh, you know the distribution corporations, all this together is arguably the most powerful corporate complex in the world. So they're certainly powerful. Uh, intelligence is another matter. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think they're making a terrible <laughs> mistake because uh, they're setting up themselves up for disaster either way. If if they find more fuel, extract it, and uh, market it so that we burn it, then the climate is really going to get out of control. Uh, if they are not able to sell and have us burn all this stuff, then they're just getting themselves more and more assets that are going to end up being worthless, what a lot of people call stranded assets. Because if, if we're only going to use 60% of the oil and gas that we've already found, that means obviously 40% or so is not going to get used. And so that's what people are now calling stranded assets, and it's not going to be worth anything. So either, I, I mean, I, I really do think they're making a huge mistake. Either they're going to end up with even more stranded assets than they have already, or they're going to uh, succeed in uh, marketing all this stuff and undermine uh, the economy for everybody, including themselves. I'm sure you have and have had a lot of very interesting conversations with leaders of organizations who are impacting the problem, for better or worse. Can you kind of give us an understanding of the kind of questions that you're putting to them? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I have talked to, to some of the, the fossil fuel people. I, they seem convinced that we don't really have to uh, 
stop our emissions, we'll find some other way to deal with them. And there are all these uh, potential technologies, like there's carbon capture and storage. We could keep burning fossil fuel if we captured the carbon dioxide and then stored it somewhere securely, meaning, you know, it's got to stay there for like 10,000 years. So if we had carbon capture and storage, we could keep burning fossil fuel, uh, but we don't have carbon capture and storage. And the reason we don't have it is no one's invested in it. I mean, the, the uh, oil companies have been perfectly aware of this for a long time, but they just didn't put any money in it. They now, I get the impression, they think taxpayers ought to fund the research and development on carbon capture and storage. I and mean, the problem is it hasn't been, you know, researched and developed and there and had enough trials. There are a few carbon capture and storage facilities, but uh, most of the attempted ones have gone bankrupt, actually. Uh, and there are other things. I, there's, uh, as you to know, I have a chapter about what's called carbon dioxide removal. It, it's perfectly clear scientifically that we've already emitted more carbon dioxide than uh, it's safe for us to have emitted. And so whatever we do in future, we're going to have to remove some. So carbon dioxide removal is, is or would be a good thing. The trouble with carbon dioxide removal is exactly the same as carbon capture and storage. It's a great idea, but we don't have the technology. It hasn't been developed. Uh, there, you know, there are a few companies now, and in recent years, uh, sharply more, who are beginning to do uh, trials of various particular technologies. I mean, there are different ways you can capture it. There's something called direct air capture, and there's um, something called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Anyway, different um, entrepreneurs now are trying out these different technologies, and it's very important that they do it. But the fossil fuel companies who just keep carrying on with business as usual are counting on these technologies becoming mature and becoming widespread uh, at scale soon enough that the climate doesn't get out of control. And that's possible, just barely possible, though it would be a lot more likely if a lot more um, people were investing money in it. So, for example, rather rather than Exxon going out and looking for, you know, more oil in um, off the coast of Africa or off the coast of South America and drilling these amazingly deep wells, it could be investing in direct air capture and uh, getting ready to eliminate some of the carbon that we've already put out there. But the position these guys are getting in is they're, they're carrying on with the emitting, but they're not investing in uh, what we need to do to deal with the emitted um, carbon. 
but it, nevertheless, they seem optimistic. I mean, I my impression is they think once things get bad enough, the rest of us will just um, sort of fork over enough money to make all these things happen. But as you know, you, you can't just sort of pull a technology out of your hip pocket when you need it. I mean, it, it takes decades to develop these things. They have to be at scale. If you're, uh, if you're going to capture the carbon, then you have to store it somewhere. That means you have to get it from where you captured it to where you stored it. So, you know, if you have a, a carbon capture facility on the east coast of Scotland, you can put the carbon in the empty oil well under the North Sea. But most of the places that are generating most of the carbon dioxide aren't right next to a place that has a lot of empty oil wells. So to do that, you need huge complexes of pipelines, which don't exist. I'm fascinated with this from, from, from your perspective as a, as a philosopher, because the moral imperative, if you're going to make that argument as, a, as, a, as an oil company, is surely that you, you should be taking responsibility for the solution to this um, and from a government point of view it would seem to make sense that 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 squares the circle nicely you know if they want to preserve the you know the kind of um, deals they have with oil companies and maintain those revenues mm. and keep the short term why aren't they closing that circle and making them responsible for diverting their profits into to, to building these technologies yeah well, some right one of my colleagues here at Oxford and and some other people have a proposal that what the government should say is for every ton of carbon that you import into the country in the form of gas or oil, you have to remove a ton of carbon from the atmosphere. And that way, uh, of course, it, it would be net, net zero. So you can bring in a ton of carbon if you eliminate a ton of carbon from the atmosphere. But and th their proposal is this should actually be made a legal requirement. But of course, for it to be a legal requirement, you have to get it through Parliament or the U.S. Senate or the, you know, uh, Bundestag or, or somebody, some place with some power to impose this thing. But at the moment, uh, the lobbies for the fossil fuel industry have enormous influence in all these places. And I, I don't know of a major legislative body that's about to, to make a requirement like that. So if you could get the requirement through the politics, then uh, you could have a law making the companies do it. But short of that, either they can volunteer to do it, which I would think is in their own interest, or uh, we're just going to keep making the problem worse, which is what seems to be happening. Yeah, it seems not only that you know they're not volunteering to do it; they seem to have been very successful in persuading people who aren't you know financially invested in it. But from a political point of view, there seems to be many, many people I, I see you know just flip on social media or or turn to various news outlets, and you see people who deny that carbon dioxide has anything to do with climate change, if climate change even exists. So that feels really kind of daunting and depressing to me, if I'm honest. Like, how do we, in your view, you know, what's the way to get more people educated and accepting the realities before them so that maybe there could be enough 
pressure towards these companies and these well, government bodies to to effectuate change. Well, some good good things are happening. Um, Michael Bloomberg, for example, has been working for several years now to get um, financial disclosure laws modified so that you know when you lay out your assets and liabilities and so on, you include potential liabilities from uh, climate change. That's a and there is some movement in this direction. The uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. is working on a um, one sort of requirement like this. And there's beginning to be more pressure as, again, I'm, you probably know more about this than I do, but at um, annual stockholder meetings now, there quite often is a petition demanding that the management say in some concrete detail what are the plans for dealing with uh, climate change in one form or another? I mean, sometimes the demand is, let's hear what you're going to do about your own emissions. Uh, but sometimes it's, let's hear what you're going to do about what's happening in the world in general. And uh, why, you know, why should we think that your assets are going to remain viable or your business plan is going to remain smart if you know, we get more forest fires and floods or whatever. Let's let's hear from you how you're going to deal with this. So that's one thing that's happening that's good. Uh, and that's inside business. Uh, Bill McKibben, who's a climate change activist whom you, you, you may know, he, uh, he had an organization called 350.org. The 350 was a reference to parts per million of um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But he, he now has an organization called Stop the Money Pipeline. I shouldn't say he has it. I, he was a key mover. And what they're doing is uh, putting pressure on banks to stop making the loans for these projects that the fossil fuel companies uh, want because, as you know, this is all done with borrowed money and uh, these projects have a, a payoff over 30 or 40 years. So if all these new projects of exploration are going to be carried out, that will be possible only if the companies can get the loans. And so... Uh, I think a good a good place to put pressure is on the banks uh, not to make the loans. I the mm -hmm. banks that loan the most to fossil fuel companies, the top four or five are all American. J.P. Morgan Chase is number one, Wells Fargo number two, and so on. The biggest in Europe is Barclays, uh, and so one thing to do is to put pressure on these guys any way we can, um, you know, close your accounts, get rid of your credit card, take your mortgage yeah. from somebody else, etc. I mean, we, we need some smart, innovative, uh, tactical ideas, I think, but we need to, uh, we need to pressure the banks as well as the, the fossil fuel companies and the politicians. I mean, I think Climate change is fundamentally a political problem. We have a lot of incumbent politicians who are doing nothing about it. So uh, 
we need to send them into retirement and uh, get some politicians who will do something about it. This is all a pretty tangled web, but I, I think we just we need to put pressure everywhere we can on the companies, on the banks, work against the politicians, publicize the facts. So you, um, you talk in the book about this relationship we have with time that affects our sense of urgency. Can you t- talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, normally, of course, we, we think that um, we're here in the present and there, there was the past, but it's gone and then there'll be the future. But of course, it's down the road somewhere. But when you, when you look at the, the nature of our climate, you find there are these enormously long lead times between cause and effect. So carbon dioxide emissions that were emitted 20 or 30 years ago, much of them, a large portion of them is still in the atmosphere and is still holding in the heat and the heat gets absorbed by the ocean. Things happen very slowly in the ocean, but so over the next few centuries, the ocean's going to gradually, the water's going to gradually expand. And so that'll raise sea level a little bit. And also over the really long run, there has to be equilibrium between the heat in the ocean and the heat in the air. So very gradually, heat will come out of the ocean into the air. And that'll raise the air temperature. And all this stuff, like like the ocean, uh, these changes will take not just centuries, but millennia. And so, in one sense, this gives us this enormous power for good or for ill, because the things we do, and specifically emissions we create, are going to affect the lives of countless people over many, many, many generations. And so the future isn't some distant time that, uh, you know, way down the road somewhere. We are actually, uh, to a considerable extent, creating the future right now. And um, it's in our hands. We think of the future as not yet born, but actually it's... It's a borning. It's in the making, and we're the ones mm. uh, making it, and we're going to uh, set the parameters that uh, f- future generations are, are going to have to either live with or try to change, uh, but they're going to have to deal with them. And I, something similar is true about the past. That's a slightly different story. That That's... Um, relevant to why those of us who live now in nations that emitted a lot of carbon dioxide in the the Industrial Revolution have some responsibility for what our uh, four parents did. People say, uh, well, like my friend Anil Agarwal used to say, well, the U.S. has emitted more carbon dioxide than any other country in the world, uh, the, the Americans then would say, yeah, but most of that was emitted by people who never heard of climate change, probably never heard of carbon dioxide, and they certainly didn't know they were undermining the, client, the uh, climate. So you can't blame us 
for what our forefathers did. And I agree, it's not about blame, but we live in a rich, well-developed, uh, affluent society that came out of that past. And I think it's, uh, it's unreal uh, as well as irresponsible to act as if it's nothing to do with us. I mean, I, I went to great universities which existed because they were in societies that had great wealth and that wealth came, a lot of it, from the Industrial Revolution. And so what I am and the life I've lived uh, is partly a product of the Industrial Revolution and I I embrace it, but if I'm going to embrace all this benefit that came, I can't ignore the fact that uh, that same process did a lot of damage. So I, I have to own my country's past and own my country's future, uh, or else I'm uh, ignoring the way things really are. Uh, I'm failing to face reality, denying it. So yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you are talking here about privilege and the, right. the responsibilities that go alongside that, and um, that—that's right. not a. I mean, that that concept we've explored on the show from a from, from a you know opportunities for the individual, but at a nation statehood level. Right. Um, yeah. This is and huge. I mean, you know, we can't uh, we can't deny the massive privilege that. Um, being drivers of the industrial revolution have provided us because every consequence of that um, means that we are looking at our successes and our past in from that lens or not um, so I'm, I'm really interested to see how you think particularly younger generations who feel angry about the poor leadership you know um, how they're thinking about it from your perspective yeah well, I do think some of them are are saying precisely you're we're ignoring reality. I, I it seems to me the you know fossil fuel companies that are investing in more exploration for more oil, I think, are really are just flying in the face of of reality and basically engaging in some kind of wish fulfillment or dreamy hope that somebody somehow someday is going to deal with this but um mm. that's not a realistic hard-headed way uh to think about the world uh and ignores uh what's happened so far you know it, it's not some people think that this is about how we're we're all bad or our uh, you know our ancestors were bad or it was wrong to have the industrial revolution it Nobody's saying any of this, you know, was wrong or evil or bad. It's there have been unintended consequences, uh, but there are unintended consequences of something that we are part of. And uh, we, you know, keep the wealth and enjoy the, uh, the air conditioning and the uh, good cars and good diet and so on. So we can't... Uh, rationally, I think, ignore the fact that these unintended consequences have come from the same process. And so it is indeed up to us to do something 
about it. And in many ways, it's a great opportunity. I mean, you know, how often are you in the position to actually affect the course that history takes and, uh, you know, make a choice that will affect whether future generations have a whole new energy system, you know, wind is free, sun is free, water is free. I mean, we, we can have an energy system in which you don't pay for fuel. I mean, that's amazing. And it's perfect. That's all perfectly possible. Uh, but we have, we have to do it soon enough that we haven't uh, gotten ourselves into s such a pickle meanwhile that we can't enjoy it. Hi, producer Phil here. What would it take to compete with and ultimately beat the existing tech giants? Back in season one of The Evolving Leader, we spoke to Alex Kantovich about day one, a term which at Amazon is code for working inventively and urgently, as if it were the first day of your startup. While corporate giants of the past would do everything they could to defend their core advantage, today's Goliaths are in a constant state of reinvention. And despite their massive size, they understand that once you become obsessed with the past, you'll miss the future. As always, I'll leave a link in the show notes. I love the practical suggestion you gave a few minutes back uh, that, you know, you could, if you're, if you're invested in a bank that is, you know, responsible for funding much of these uh, oil pipelines and stuff, you could move your accounts, you could go somewhere else. Is there any other you know, real tangible, practical pieces of advice you might give to our listeners who, who are thinking, I really want to do my part. What what are some things I might not be thinking of? Well, the other side of that, it's fairly obvious, I guess, but is do invest in uh, initiatives that might actually be making a difference. And another of the, the good things that's happening that I haven't really mentioned is there, there are a lot of people out there now uh, working on things like, um, you know, better batteries. Uh, as everybody understands, I think wind and solar power are both intermittent. So in order to integrate them into the electric grid, we need uh, large uh, capacity batteries. And, and we're going to need, and of course, we need batteries for electric cars and so on. So there's all kinds of innovations that that are, people are working on. I mean, it, if the batteries could be less heavy, then maybe they could also be in airplanes. Uh, if they, of course, could last longer, then you could get farther in your electric car and so on. Um, I'm, the, you know, a philosopher is the last person you want to get uh, investment advice from so i don't i'm not necessarily saying uh, invest in batteries but you know there, there's a lot of technological change that that we need and uh um probably there are a lot of ways to make money so uh, so yeah get out of the guys who are causing the problems and uh, invest in the guys who are uh, are are trying to do better and there there are uh, firms that uh, make a point of investing only in companies that they think are contributing to the solution to climate change there's uh, uh, I can't think of the name of it right now but there's one in London 
that uh, Al Gore, as you can imagine, is is very involved in, and they're you know they are a uh, they they exist to make money. They're trying to invest in companies that will be profitable, but only ones that are going to contribute to dealing with climate change. And obviously, that's tricky judgment to make. But uh, and there are other, there are other people doing this. Uh, there there are brokers now who are setting up portfolios of companies. They exclude all companies that are part of the problem, so no fossil fuel companies, but they include companies that they think have a chance of being a, uh, a part of the solution to the problem, uh, but also be good investments. And, uh, and there's no reason why. I mean, there's so much that, that needs to be done. Uh, there's no reason there couldn't be lots of of good uh, investments that will will be positive. We're uh, you know we're going to have to remake the electricity grids. This is going to involve artificial intelligence. Uh, we're going to uh, if we're going to do carbon removal, uh, we're going to have to come up with ways to move the carbon around and and store it. Uh, you know, now we think that would mean building great webs of pipelines. Maybe there's some other way uh, to do it. Uh, if somebody can figure it out, that would be great. Uh, or maybe there are, you know, if you can use, you don't have to store the carbon dioxide, of course, if you can use it. Right now, it gets used for fracking. It gets used, you inject the carbon dioxide into wells that are... Uh, pretty well depleted and you can squeeze out a little more oil. Of course, that's just what we don't need. But um, there are other products that can be made with carbon dioxide, uh, beer for one. That's not a new idea. But, you know, that I th I th there are people looking into products, uh, quite new kinds of products that you could have uh, of which carbon dioxide would be a constituent. Uh, so that, that, that there's lots of positive stuff uh, to do too. But kind of behind it all, I, th I think we we really should keep our eyes on the fact that we need we really need political change because we need we need governments to uh, either. Um, you know, have carbon trading or carbon taxes at a minimum. They need to stop subsidizing. It's amazing. I mean, the the governments of the G20 countries are still subsidizing fossil fuels. The U.S., uh, for example, has subsidies equivalent to about $2,000 per American every year in, wow. um, you know, special tax breaks and, you know, special depreciation allowances and all this kind of stuff. And this is crazy. And we really uh, yeah. need to get some uh, political people who put a stop to it. I'm interested in, you know, the, the argument you were making earlier on, or the argument that the oil companies are making to themselves that, you know, if only we can find a way of taking the, the carbon out of the atmosphere, we'll all be fine. Obviously, they're not responsible or not prepared to take responsibility for solving that. How do 
you know, as a philosopher, you're you're there kind of trying to understand the underlying logic that people make in the arguments around how they live their lives. How do we deceive ourselves around this topic, or how are we deceiving ourselves that that we've got time, or you know, that it will, you know, we don't need to think about it? What what are you noticing in the conversations that you have with people? Well, part of it is something I'm, I'm sure you're thinking about already, which is just it it is difficult to uh, get away from short-termism and uh, focus on the long run, uh, hard for, for everybody. Uh, and with a, a lot of these things, uh, the, the costs are front-loaded. You know, you pay now and benefit later. I mean, the, with renewables, uh, since the fuel is free, uh, it's not going to cost very much to operate wind and solar and hydroelectric and so on, thermal, whatever. But, of course, it costs a lot to install the uh, the facilities in the first place. So you have front-loaded costs and the benefits later. That's a kind of uh, investment that's hard for people to uh, get their head around because you, you want the, uh, the uh, profits and benefits to start coming in soon. And of course, in some cases, the, some of the benefits are you're, you are never going to get because they're really going to go to future mm. generations. Um, as, as I said earlier, I, I think there is a fair amount of wishful thinking going on because people are just not uh, facing the situation as it actually is. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book is is so-called tipping points. That we know from the climate science that one can reach a point at which something gets locked in and it can't, cannot be changed later. It's it's irreversible. And this has happened with uh, what's called the West Antarctic ice sheet that it is now melting and it's quite clear and it's possible to give a fairly detailed explanation of why it it's going to melt until it's all melted it's the melting is irreversible it's going to take a couple of centuries but uh, but there's no stopping it but there are a lot of other things that would be similar but haven't happened yet. I mean, one of the ones that I think is just heartbreaking is the Amazon. It's quite clear that there is a point where the Amazon forest will shrink enough that it'll lose its capacity to sustain itself. You know, that one of the wonderful things about the Amazon is in a way it makes its own weather. It's because it's so big and holds in so much moisture that it sort of causes its own rain. And But mm. this is only true above a certain size. And when you get down uh, to that size, uh, it'll start irreversibly deteriorating and, and won't be a rainforest anymore. It'll be a savanna or something else. And a lot of scientists think we're really quite close to that. Uh, 
I think there's a fair amount of wishful thinking going on because people are not looking at the real detail and and one of the real details is that there are tipping points that is there are kinds of change which once they start uh, there's no stopping them I mean another scary one is the permafrost which as you know permafrost is basically frozen ground with a lot of water in it so frozen the the water has frozen as ice in in the ground so but the permafrost has a lot of uh methane and uh carbon dioxide and one of the possible tipping points is if if in the arctic now not the antarctic but the arctic things get warm enough that the uh, Arctic permafrost gets rolling, um, it can easily feed on itself. I mean, if some melts, that'll release more carbon dioxide and methane. That Those are greenhouse gases. That'll hold in more heat. That'll make more permafrost and so on. So people who think that we can just kind of mosey along um, business as usual, and then later uh, we'll think of something clever to fix this, are, for the most part, assuming that things are quite linear. If Maybe things are getting worse, but they're just getting gradually worse. But they aren't just getting gradually worse. In some cases, they are getting abruptly worse. And in some of those cases, they're going to get abruptly and irreversibly worse. And it's very important that we not get that far. And I do want to emphasize, I don't, I'm not saying I think we're doomed quite the contrary. It's, it's not that this is all already going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. It's all possible, but there's a lot we can do about it and it doesn't need to happen. But um, if we just keep uh, being half-hearted and... Uh, lackadaisical and casual about it all, uh, then it will happen. And part of the reason it will happen is that these changes are not, some of these changes are not linear. They're abrupt and and radical. And that's because the climate system works the way it works. And if you talk to some scientists, they can explain that to you very clearly. As we come to a close, Henry, I'd be curious, you know, what, what are your next projects? What's your next area of focus? Well, you won't be surprised that it's uh, more on climate change. I Over the course of my life, I've kind of done one problem per decade, but until I got to climate change. But uh, this is the mother of all problems, I think. So I'm uh, sticking with it. And actually, one project I have um, from a philosophical point of view is about complicity that is not uh doing harm but helping others to do harm contributing to harm and it's actually about i mean the concrete version of it is it's about banks uh i think not nearly enough attention has been paid to banks uh you know they are not emitting uh greenhouse gases uh, so they're in that sense, they're not directly causing the problem, but for the obvious reasons that we've talked about already, I think they're a big part of the problem. And so I'm just interested in how to 
think about that. Um, you know, you tend to think the person who who does the damage must be worse than the person who enables the damage. But I'm not so sure about that. I think maybe if, if the person who does the damage couldn't do it uh, without the uh, enabling of the other party, maybe the enabler is the one uh, who's the, the worst. So anyway, there, there are a lot of, hmm. of uh, morally and philosophically interesting questions about complicity, and I, I think they do also have implications for, for uh, what we should do politically. I'm still sort of amazed uh, and that more isn't happening and so would like to do anything I can to try to make more happen by showing how this is, uh, is urgent. Well, Henry, Professor Shu, we've been uh, inspired by your work and your th thinking and we're incredibly grateful for you coming on the show and we look forward to whatever new thinking you bring next um so yeah thank you very much yeah thank you you've given us lots to think about appreciate your time well it's kind of you to have me i i've enjoyed it and uh, wish you well all right folks remember until next time the world is evolving we all have a moral and ethical responsibility to do what we can to slow climate change right now